This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fake or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And a good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome in to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie as we come to you for the very, very first time on this Super Sunday. This is Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Doc, how are you this morning? Thank you for that beautiful hello, Joe. And thank you, listeners, and welcome to our inaugural episode of Your Radio Doctor. My name is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm very fortunate to be your host, and I'm very excited to tell you about our show. For over 30 years, I've practiced gastroenterology in the Philadelphia area. Yes, I perform colonoscopy, which means I'm not very popular. I was the first woman to practice GI in the Philadelphia suburbs, hence the nickname GI Josephine, as opposed to GI Joe. Your radio doctor will air each Sunday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. on WPHT. I'll be interviewing medical experts from around the country about common medical conditions, My goal is to speak for you, the lay community, asking doctors questions that you can then take to ask your cardiologist, pediatrician, or surgeon. Born and raised in Philadelphia, I'm a proud graduate of Hawk Hill, St. Joseph's University. Perfect training for medical school, but the Jesuit motto taught all students to become men and women for others. I also wear my MD degree from Jefferson Medical College with great pride and affection, outstanding classes and hospital experience, but my Physician role models ingrained in me the essential principle to treat every patient with dignity and respect. Lankanal Hospital was my home for three years as an internal medicine resident. Long, hard hours led to lifelong friendships with fellow residents and attendings. We gained a superb foundation in general medicine. It was there I met my ultimate mentor, Dr. Franz Goldstein, world-renowned scholar and gentleman. He escaped war-torn Germany in 1945, then devoted his life to the art of healing. More about him on another day. And what a gift to train a GI at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York, the first all-cancer hospital in the world, a brain trust of the best and brightest doctors and scientists, all with the same goal, to erase cancer. I trained with Dr. Sidney Winnemer, the icon of colon cancer research of the 20th century, and the brilliant Dr. Bob Kurtz, Jefferson grad, then a year with two giants in the field of nutrition, Dr. Moshe Scheich and Dr. Maurice Schills, who wrote the book on TPN, which is IV nutrition. Memorial Hospital, 20 floors of cancer patients, a floor of acute leukemia, a floor of chronic leukemia, a floor of old children. You get the picture. Every day I left that building, not in a wheelchair, not with a feeding tube or an IV, I said, thank you, God. And that was the experience that still fuels me today. I came home to practice at Lankanal Hospital, and there were two women in GI in Philly. They did some research and patient care. I was the first and only full-time woman in GI patient care in the Philadelphia suburbs and beyond. After our children came along, 
I kept the promise to put family first, cut my practice to three days a week and one weekend a month. That helped to balance family and practice for several years. But then my mother died rather quickly after a diagnosis of breast cancer, and my father began to fail. As his needs increased, I left work. My parents had done everything for me, and now it was time to focus more on my dad. After he passed away, I was on faculty at Temple University Hospital for several years, and then I came home to Jefferson. This is a very exciting time to be at Jefferson, especially in GI. Our stellar chief, Dr. Anthony J. DiMarino, is a nationally recognized scholar, and my colleagues are changing the face of treatment for hepatitis C, liver transplants, pancreatic cancer. They're stars in colonoscopy bowel prep research, celiac disease, motility disorders, and more. They're focused, dedicated, and genuinely good people. Through the years, I've worn several hats. Yes, I'm a physician, but first, I'm a daughter, a sister, a wife, a mother, and hallelujah, finally a grandmother. I watched my mother disappear only weeks after her diagnosis. I had to convince my father to go through with heart surgery when he was terrified. And as he struggled with dementia, I had to hide the keys to his car. So when I listen to a patient, I try to remember how I felt when both of my twin sisters were diagnosed with breast cancer within days of each other. When my son had a life-threatening reaction to nuts, the five-minute ride to the hospital felt like hours. And I can still feel my heart pounding as I help my daughter off the field with her concussion. And every saint in heaven heard my plea on the day when my husband woke up and said his arm and leg just wouldn't cooperate. I'm reminded of the times I had to heimlich my own father as he was choking. That instant response saved his life. So when I'm in public and someone falls, I am in go mode. I've done CPR on airplanes, in church, restaurants, on the street. And when I talk to a patient, I know I'm helping a sister, a daughter, a neighbor, and I really try to understand how they think and why. I might suggest colonoscopy, and a patient will say, no. Then I learn their father had a perforation. Or some will say, Doc, can't you just give me a medication? Because they think maybe if we skip the x-ray or blood test, they won't have to face the surgery or the chemotherapy. There's that Jesuit training again, Crura Personalis. Consider the whole person. There's a big difference between pain and suffering. We can give you a pill to help your pain, but it takes a heart and soul to understand a patient's real fears. And I respect that sacred trust between patient and physician, and they listen because I assure them, I'm 49% your doctor and 51% your mother. I often remind my children, you can't be happy unless you're grateful, and you can't be grateful unless you're humble. My medical students hear me repeat it. There is no place for arrogance in our profession. Thousands of qualified students apply to med school, but they pick me and they pick you. And it's an honor and a privilege to be a physician. The training is grueling, and a doctor's life includes sacrifice, missing family occasions, leisure time, sleep, but I often think of the sheer joy I felt on June 6, 1980 at graduation when the Jefferson Dean announced my new name, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and the sense of fulfillment now when I can say to a patient, your cancer is gone. My mission as your radio doctor is to come right into your car, right in your kitchen while you sip your coffee and discuss in very clear terms common diseases, how you can prevent them, how you recognize early symptoms when treatment can be more helpful, and give you the tools to make good decisions for yourself and your loved ones. Anyone can be Dr. Google. I want to be your advocate. Each week, I will be your voice asking the questions, listing concerns from your viewpoint. Then you'll be better prepared when you are in the doctor's office.
Special thanks to Sue Rocco for inviting me as the medical contributor every week on her show, Women to Watch, Sunday nights at 7 here on WPHT. Tune in to hear her stellar interviews of women leaders from around the world. And finally, I dedicate my efforts as a thank you to all the people who helped me live out my dream as a doctor, my beautiful and generous parents who now live in heaven, my very wise big sisters and brothers, and my outstanding mentors, most of all, my incredibly devoted and understanding husband, Dr. Stuart Gordon, my precious children, Andrew and Nicole, Victoria and Tom, Philip, and my angel grandson, baby Tommy. Thank you for listening. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie as we go to our first commercial break here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. The show rolls on with our special guest back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And back here with Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, as we come to you on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you, Joe. And what a great way to start our show. From Jefferson University Hospital, our guest today, Dr. Howard Weitz, who is a professor of internal medicine and a senior associate dean at our Sidney Kimmel Medical College. He educates physicians worldwide through the American College of Physicians. He was recently made a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in London for his global impact on health care. Helped set up national standards for training cardiologists. And at Jeff, he's developing a master physician program. All this, but his first passion is still direct patient care for those with heart disease and helping people prevent it. And in interest of full disclosure, he's a dear friend and colleague of mine. Welcome, Dr. Howard Weitz. Thank you very much, and it's great to be here on the first show on Super Sunday. We feel very special, special to have you. So let's talk about heart disease. February is American Heart Month, and we've made great progress in recent decades in saving lives from heart disease, but it's still a major cause of death in U.S., for patients over age 45? That's exactly right. So let's start with talking about typical symptoms. So, so, so Mayor, here's a story. About 80% of people who have heart attacks get symptoms. The problem is 20% do not have symptoms. And we'll talk about them a little bit later. The classic symptom is chest pain or chest pressure almost like an elephant sitting on your chest and something that does not go away uh, in a few seconds, last minutes or longer. Sometimes you can get pain in the jaw or, or your neck or even your back or the pain goes down your arms, usually the left arm, but it could be the right arm or both arms. And we're especially concerned when a patient has all of the symptoms, chest pressure, chest pain, radiating up to the neck, and down the arms. Sometimes people feel weakness with this or lightheadedness. Sick to the stomach, cold sweat, shortness of breath. And I'll tell you, these are the classic symptoms. Women or people with diabetes may not have the classic symptoms. Uh, while they may, for women, it may be shortness of breath, nausea, sick to the stomach, that might be the symptom of their heart attack. And so we think of the classic chest pain. I'm glad you brought up back pain because I have had patients 
who tell me their husbands or their family members have only back pain out of nowhere, and they take them to the emergency room, and that's the end. Um, and, of course, diabetics, you were starting to say, can have silent heart attacks. Can you tell us about that a little bit? So, so many people who have diabetes, the diabetes can affect the nerves of the heart. So you can have a heart attack and not feel the symptoms. And, you know, if you look at all people who have heart attacks, one in five did not have the symptoms. And we just pick it up looking at an EKG. We'll say, gee, when did you have this heart attack in the past? And they'll say, what heart attack? So it's so important to see, have your annual physical, because if we do see evidence of a heart attack before in a person who has absolutely no symptoms, how do we stay ahead of the next you know, episode. then we're going to really push and look at their heart risk factors. Uh, and we'll see if they were at risk of a heart attack. And, um, you know, we might even do other heart imaging, like a heart ultrasound, to see if the finding of a heart attack on their electrocardiogram matches up with a scar in their heart muscle. So if your heart is the pump, that's what sends out the fresh oxygenated blood to your brain and your stomach, and your bowels, maybe that's why if your heart's failing or not getting blood supply itself, it can't pump the blood to your GI tract, and that's why you feel nausea, or that's why you feel back pain, because the blood vessels aren't being fed fresh oxygen. So, so what, that's true, and also, you see, a lot of the nerves that supply the back and the stomach also are involved in supplying the heart. And, you know, when you're an embryo and a fetus and, you know, a growing baby, as you get longer, the nerves uh, get stretched. And, and, and that's why heart symptoms can affect other parts of the body. Uh, and it's, it's something that, you know, I feel your audience must know about these symptoms because the sooner they seek medical attention, the smaller the heart attack could be. And, you know, the heart's a pump. Uh, the heart attack is caused by lack of blood supply to that pump. The longer the blood is um, impaired to the pump, the more the heart damage will be. Mm -hmm. So if a person feels symptoms, especially back pain out of nowhere, and they haven't picked up a heavy box and they can't blame it on anything recent, if somebody suspects they're having a heart attack, what would be your advice? So, Mayor, if someone suspects having a heart attack, we would want them to get to a hospital as soon as possible. And not drive themselves to the hospital. No. Call 911 or have someone take you to the hospital. If you think you're having a heart attack, we want you to take aspirin to chew a full aspirin. Or if you have only a baby aspirin, chew four baby aspirin. Because aspirin can um, stop the blood clot that's causing the heart attack and give you um, a leg up on preventing heart muscle injury that could be permanent. So chew a full uh, regular aspirin or for baby aspirin. Is there anything else? I remember in one situation I was at the art museum at, at a lecture and there were a lot of people and the lectures on the steps and a lady, I just watched her sort of turn gray. The blood flow wasn't going to her head. And she, the first thing I thought was I started grabbing tablecloths off the tables to elevate her feet. I had her lie down and elevate her legs so the blood would continue to go to her head. So would you say... While you're waiting for the ambulance, is there anything like that that we would recommend to do? So I would say while you're waiting for the ambulance, fire rescue, EMS services, whatever, sit down or lie down. 
because uh, sometimes when you have a heart attack, your heart you can get very slow or very fast. And if it gets very slow or fast, your blood pressure can decrease, make you lightheaded and pass out. If you're seated or laying flat, you'd be less likely to pass out. You're safer. And when people do have these symptoms, a lot of times the first impulse is jump in a car or get your spouse or somebody to drive you. But think of it this way. If you have more trouble in the car, your loved one or your neighbor can't stop and do CPR while they're driving you. At least if you wait for the EMTs to come, they can be helping you on the path to the hospital. Absolutely right. They are prepared. They are trained to administer cardiac first aid should it be needed on the way to the hospital. Plus, they can call ahead and say, we're on our way. We'll be there in four minutes. Be ready because then triage or separate people who have a broken arm that can wait a little bit and the person has the heart attack or possible stroke. We want to get them in because what happens when they walk into the yeah. ER or they take you into the ER, I should say. So, so, you know, when you get to the emergency room, if EMS, fire rescue, ambulance is taking you, they'll call ahead and the ER will be alerted to that. But let's say your neighbor or friend is taking you. We want you to um, have them say, as soon as you get through that ER door, I think my friend is having a heart attack because the ER is set up to stop everything and attend to that person might be having a heart attack. Because heart attack caused by blocked blood vessel, the sooner we can get that vessel open, the quicker we can stop the heart attack and save heart muscle. And the heart's a pump. Once the muscle dies or is scarred, it's gone. It doesn't come back. So our goal is to assess whether you're having a heart attack or not. If you are, get that vessel open as soon as possible. And the other thing, as you mentioned, sit down or lie down, because if you do feel you're going to pass out and you fall and hit your head, then it just complicates things all the more. Absolutely. I mean, so often we'll see patients who passed out during a heart attack we have to worry about their facial trauma or broken hip or broken leg. Absolutely. More when we come back, and we'll talk about risk factors that we can control and those that we can't. Good opening segment here on your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie as we come to you on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, one programming reminder for all of our listeners tuning in here on this Sunday morning. Don't forget, coming up at 11 a.m. this morning, The Sounds of Sinatra with Sid Mark right here every Sunday at 11 a.m. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Back in a minute. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on Radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And welcome back, everyone, on a Sunday morning. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Education is our priority. Your understanding is how Dr. Marianne will define success. We're here every Sunday morning on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, your radio doctor. Thanks, Joe. We're back with my dear friend and colleague from Jefferson University, Dr. Howard Weitz, cardiologist extraordinaire, and he's making the facts about protecting you or your loved one from heart attack, plain and simple. So we know if you have symptoms or if your loved one has symptoms, the first thing you do, have them lie down, call 911, chew an aspirin. And it's probably not a bad idea, do you think, Howard, to leave the phone open and be 
have a continuing conversation with the 911 person to help you with it's a great idea mayor because look you're going to be feeling really bad and scared and your loved one or friend whoever is with you is going to be in panic they're liable to hang up before letting uh, fire rescue know where you are so have them keep the phone open they'll be there quickly fire rescue will take you to the nearest hospital Mm -hmm. so the question is what's going to happen once you get to the hospital uh, they'll be alerted in the emergency department that you might be having a heart attack and they're going to greet you, check your vital signs, meaning your blood pressure and your heart rate, and immediately do an electrocardiogram. The electrocardiogram are called EKG. They'll put these leads on your chest and take an electrical impression of your heartbeat. That will give them a tip as to whether or not you're having a heart attack. If it suggests you're having a heart attack due to a blockage of a vessel, because may I mention earlier that a heart attack occurs when the heart's blood supply stops. Here's how it stops. In most people, a heart attack is caused by a little plaque, a thickening, a fat collection that lines the heart blood vessel, and for some reason, that plaque breaks. You know, just like if you, if you scrape your knee, a scab forms, part of the healing process. Well, if that lining of the heart blood vessel, that plaque breaks, the body tries to heal it by forming a scab. We call it a clot or a thrombus is the medical name for it. Problem is when that scab forms in the hose, it's like a garden hose filling the heart with blood, it blocks the blood supply past where the scab's forming. Bad, because the heart muscle can't get its blood supply and it starts dying. The electrocardiogram is a tip-off as to whether that, that has happened. If the electrocardiogram reveals a sudden heart attack, we call an ST elevation heart attack, the main treatment is going to be to get that vessel open as soon as possible. Our goal is to get it open within 90 minutes of you walking in the door of that emergency department. So we're going to take you up to the heart catheterization laboratory where specialists in the cardiology approach to opening blocked vessels, heart invasive cardiologists, are going to either go through an artery in your wrist or an artery in your groin with a long, thin tube to channel it right up to the heart looking for that blockage. They'll be injecting radiographic dye looking for the blockage. If they see the blockage, they're going to open it up with a balloon and put a stent in a little metal coil all within 90 minutes of you walking in the door. So let me also say, Mayor, sometimes people can have nausea and vomiting due to having the heart attack or during the catheterization. So if you think you're having a heart attack and you call 911, don't eat anything other than that aspirin. Nothing to eat. Because if you start having vomiting and there's food in your stomach, it can cause other complications. Well, as you and I don't know how much sedation is used for a cardiac cath. We're going to talk about that next week, but... Um, whenever you have a test or you're lying down, if you reflux any of that fluid or anything you've eaten, you could aspirate and die um, or have pneumonia or, or choke in the middle of the procedure. But it's interesting when you talk about getting into the emergency room, that EKG, what we see on that strip of paper is a classic graph pattern, and it should be the same. Every time your heart does lub-dub, lub-dub, we see a spike that goes up and a spike that goes down and a little blip called the the return doesn't matter what it's called, but we find this classic pattern. So if those triangles 
or those lines go in the wrong direction, that gives us a hint what whether a part of your heart's not working. If the um, graph symbol is coming too quickly, then you're, we know your heart's maybe in an abnormal rhythm. And all those things help us put the story together. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so sometimes people are given a clot buster. You want to tell us that, about that a little bit? So, so again, the clot blocking the heart vessel blood supply is the cause of the heart attack. And in certain areas where they, where you, they don't have heart catheterization laboratories, do the emergency catheterization within 90 minutes, we give the patient a medication that can dissolve the clot, the clot buster. I will tell you in the Philadelphia area, most emergency departments are linked to hospitals that can do the catheterization immediately. Even if it's your local hospital that does not have a heart cath laboratory, they are set up to get you to the nearest hospital that has one uh, with a cath team on call 24-7. Philadelphia is well covered. Oh, Philadelphia is hospital row. We're so fortunate. So what puts people at risk? You know, you listen to um, lectures or you'll pick up a magazine and it will say, you need to exercise, watch your diet. We know those basics, those mantras are repeated for cancer prevention and heart disease. And there are certain things we can control in life. You can't choose your genes. So family history plays a big role in, in risk and we can't change that. What are some of the risk factors we can address and improve people's risks? So, Mayor, I think the big risk factor that can be changed or modified is cigarette smoking. You know, when I see a heart attack in a young person, meaning someone younger than age 45, almost always they're a cigarette smoker. How about that? Yeah. Uh, and it's really, really, really a major cause. It irritates the vessels that supply the heart with blood and helps speed up the hardening of the artery process. It's hard to stop smoking. It really is. And the typical person who stops for good has tried to stop several times before they're successful. Sure. If they're successful. If they're successful. So cigarette smoking is bad. And I mean stopping, Mm -hmm. not having just a few cigarettes a day. I mean totally stopping. The other biggie is the sedentary lifestyle or the lack of physical activity, lack of exercise. Well, we're all sitting in front of a computer. We're all commuting and sitting in traffic. It's it's really the way of the present, not even the future. It's here. It's brutal. And, Mary, you don't need a gym membership to be active. Medical research has shown that you need about 140 to 150 minutes a week in divided segments of physical activity. And I'm not saying activity so that you're short of breath. I'm just saying get up, walk around. You know, you know, folks who um, uh, drive to, to work, I say park a couple blocks away. Right. So you build in a 20-minute walk to work or a 10-minute walk to work each way. And get your exercise in that way. Take a walk at lunchtime. Use the steps at work. I always try to use the steps at work. You know, it's interesting, too. We talk about high blood pressure and Many times people say, I have a headache. It must be my blood pressure. Now, we know that's not a symptom of high blood pressure. So don't wait to have a high blood pressure, or I'm sorry, don't wait to have a headache to get your blood pressure checked. An annual physical, there's so many spinoffs we could talk about before I go on. And smoking, so people think, well, vaping is just pouring fluid into a little plastic pen, no problem. And we know from the news, I've researched it pretty in depth myself so I can tell my patients about it, but not a good substitute. Bad. Bad. I mean, and, and there's lung disease that can be caused by vaping. 
And you may want to have a full show on that, but do oh, not, we shall. Yeah. Do not transition from smoking cigarettes to vaping. And for our listeners, what seems to be the case is that there are 7,000 flavors. Any of, some of those can damage your white blood cells, which help you fight off infection, which is kind of like immuno, which is immunosuppression. But it also, we know that when people put oil to get a better vape, usually they use oil, I think, when they're adding THC. But either way, the oil forms fat droplets that fill the tiny air, air sacs in your lungs. Can't use an antibiotic to fix that. Once they're plugged up, you don't exchange oxygen and people can be very, very sick. So, but with blood pressure, now the new target to start treating is 130 over 80. We used to say 140 over 90. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and blood pressure is that one of these silent risk factors. Yes. You know, and, and that's why you need your pressure checked periodically. Uh, another risk factor, uh, Mayor, is high blood cholesterol levels. Another silent risk factor. Um, diabetes, high blood sugar, silent but treatable. And, you know, you read now that when we check the, the um, hemoglobin A1C, and that's a measure, it's an average of your blood sugar over the course of a month, we're getting that checked because a lot of damage happens before you're considered a diabetic on medications. When we come back... We'll talk more about risk factors that we can control and treatment. And thank you, Dr. Weitz, for being here. One question on behalf of the audience I want to ask the doctor. Is 130 over 80, is that now considered high blood pressure? We want your pressure lower than 130 over 80, if possible. If you go for a physical or a pre-surgery physical, and your pressure is registered at 130 over 80, should you be alarmed by that, or should you, what should you do? Okay, so, so the story is, that's the ideal pressure, that number or lower. You shouldn't panic if it's 135 or even 140. It's something that you'll, your doctor will work with you, usually with modifying lifestyle, diet, etc., to help keep it there or get it lower. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie as we come to you on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We're back on the other side of the commercial break for our final segment of the inaugural show. Back in a moment. Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And on a Sunday morning here in the Delaware Valley, we certainly hope you're enjoying Dr. Marianne Ritchie. This is your radio doctor, Marianne. Thank you. We're here with Dr. Howard Weiss from Jefferson University Hospital. We're talking about symptoms of heart disease and risk factors. One of the things we didn't touch on yet, of course, is obesity. But the other thing that people fail to mention is sleep apnea. If you snore, get a sleep study. Every time, apnea is a word that means that you stop breathing. So you might hear your loved one snore and have a couple little, (gasps) and then you see them or you hear them and they stop. Their oxygen level drops. Not good for your heart. Not good for your brain. Really increases the risk for stroke and heart attack. Wouldn't you say, Dr. Weitz? So, so Mayor, there's been a lot of research on sleep apnea, sometimes called obstructive sleep apnea. And it does tend to increase your blood pressure even during the day, even during the day. And we're currently researching the impact it has on cardiac risk. 
You know, uh, we've heard about atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heart rhythm that can lead to stroke. Sleep apnea can be a cause of um, atrial fibrillation. And I think, too, when we talk about exercise, moderate exercise for 150 minutes a week, more strenuous for 75 minutes a week. But use your head. As people age and they have more time to themselves, but their children are grown and they're tapering out at work, they can become weekend warriors. I guess that can happen at any age. But what I worry about is somebody who doesn't know they have high blood pressure because they haven't been to the doctor, I feel fine, or they might have heart disease without realizing it. And then they get out and they're going to run three or four miles and they haven't run in years. So a word to the wise about that. So, so any of you listening, if you're inspired to start exercising, do not exercise strenuously until you see your doctor if you're not an exerciser. I think if you want to start a walking program, go ahead and start doing it. And a, a little trick, if while you're walking briskly, if you get short of breath singing a song, you're doing too much and you should back it down. That's an indirect measure of how much blood supply your heart's requiring during activity. But if you've not exercised, don't start a rigorous, re- rigorous regimen until you get cleared by your doctor for it. In terms of treatment or in terms of prevention, you see your doctor always. I always tell my patients, go to your uh, primary care doctor once a year. So many hidden risk factors that can be addressed and, and help you. There's always been a controversy about taking daily baby aspirin. There's new literature to support that it might decrease your risk for colon cancer. So... When I'm talking to my patients or when I'm giving a lecture to the public, I say, don't go out and buy yourself a bottle of baby aspirin. It sounds so snuggly. It has baby in the expression. You can buy it without a prescription. It must be fine. But it's not always. We know it can cause major GI bleeding from stomach ulcers, and and um, it has its risk factors. Do you want to comment on taking a daily baby aspirin for stroke and heart attack prevention? So, so Mayor, during the past year and a half, there have been four large major research studies looking at people who have no history of heart disease or stroke and being treated with aspirin to prevent heart disease or stroke. And actually the studies have shown that the risk of the aspirin is greater than the prevention of the heart disease or the stroke. And the risk is largely at risk of bleeding, gastrointestinal bleeding, major bleeding, or brain bleeding. Mm-hmm. So even in patients with diabetes who have no history of known heart vessel disease, we do not start them on an aspirin anymore. Through the years, so many times, I'd be on call. I'd go to the emergency room for a person who comes in with, GI, with, with chest pain, classic heart attack, symptoms and signs. And we do stat bloods, and we find their hemoglobin is halfway normal. So if it's normal at 14 or 15 and they have an 8, and... We check their stool and there's hidden blood because they're taking the daily baby aspirin and their stomach ulcer just sets up this cascade of events. How about um, calcium tablets? A lot of women take calcium tablets to protect their bone health. I've heard some doctors, and this is debatable, I'm sure, that that calcium block your coronary arteries. Does that have any weight? So before we get to calcium, there's one more aspirin story. Oh, yes. For your listeners who have had heart attacks or strokes, or have had coronary artery angioplasty, that's the balloon to open a blockage and have a stent, they must be on aspirin forever. Forever. I don't want people to listen and think aspirin's bad. No. And people with heart vessel disease, prior heart attack, stroke, or angioplasty, that's opening up the blood vessel with a balloon and a stent being placed. Aspirin, the benefit of aspirin is huge for you. Stay on the aspirin. 
And sometimes people with stents are on aspirin and a blood thinner initially together because you think that's taboo, but they have different jobs. They have, they have different roles in protecting that stent and your other arteries. Yeah, and, and you stay on those medicines prescribed by your doctor until your doctor eliminates one of them. For many patients with a stent, it's six months to a year of needing two medications to keep that vessel open. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about the statin drugs that lower your cholesterol? When you have a cholesterol of 250 or 260, or even if it's borderline, it's time to treat it. When the level goes down, please don't think if you're taking a pill and your blood level looks good that you could go ahead and eat that extra candy bar or whatever. You still have to be. Yeah, you know, diet is the mainstay of therapy in people with high cholesterol. And the statin drugs we have are miracle drugs, miracle drugs, but they work best when you're on a careful diet, low-fat, low-cholesterol diet. And I think, too, I've seen literature that supports that if you exercise and you have diabetes, even if you don't lose weight, the exercise makes your insulin more effective, which is another part of heart disease and prevention and and another plug for get out there and walk, walk your doggy. Be active. Go out and look at the birdies. Yes. Find a buddy to walk with. Um, how about the carium, the sorry, the coronary calcium count? There's a, a CAT scan that's very low dose, and they do a couple quick zaps, and they can say, "Gee, we can look at your coronary arteries without doing a cardiac catheterization, which involves dye and invading your vessels and all that." Any so, comments so, about that? So the coronary CAT scan figures out the coronary calcium score. I mentioned that. Heart disease is caused by plaque, the lining of heart vessels filled with fat, cholesterol, and calcium sticks to that. Calcium shows up on an x-ray or a CAT scan. So these CAT scans can quantitate or count the amount of calcium in your heart blood vessels. So the question is, who gets it? It's not a test for everybody. We usually get it in patients who are at intermediate risk of developing heart vessel disease over the next 10 years. If you're at low risk, no reason to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're at very high risk, it's a wasted test. We know you're high risk. We treat you aggressively to prevent that heart attack. So it's often for a patient who's at intermediate risk, and your doctor can help calculate that due to a, with a standard formula, and in deciding how aggressive should this patient's cholesterol be lowered? If you're at low risk, not that aggressive. If you're at high risk, super aggressiveness in lowering the cholesterol and reversing the cardiac risk factors. And the coronary calcium score can help you figure out the burden of calcium early in your heart and how aggressive prevention must be. So if somebody has a coronary calcium count for this coronary, the calcium uh, CAT scan, the reason you don't want to jump in and just do it to everybody because we're curious, hey, what's in there? What's my self-risk here? People love self-risk assessments, don't they? Um, don't we? <laughs> I like it too. Um, you're being exposed to radiation. Exactly. It's not as clear a measure as putting dye into your arteries and seeing it. What about statins? Um, do they have any side effects that people should know about? And we want to be reminding them, go and have regular checkups because... So statin medications are very, very safe. The big concern people have, and this is very rare, is that the statins can cause muscle aching. And I'm going to tell you, Mayor, it's uncommon, very uncommon. 
Usually it occurs shortly after you start on the statin. And it could be, it's an ache where you have most muscle. It's usually the hips or the shoulders. Some people feel it's like the flu. And if that were to happen, you'd contact your doctor and your doctor would know to, to check you for muscle irritation related to the statin. Very good. And how about um, liver disease? Not liver disease, but it can make your liver a little bit inflamed. So we want to watch the liver blood studies to make sure. When the statins first came out, we were very concerned about that. The liver irritation risk is much lower than we ever thought. Beautiful. And we don't want you to get a heart attack. Thank you, Dr. Howard Weitz. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And I think our listeners, are if they have symptoms, they're going to call an ambulance right away. After they take their aspirin, they're going to be good about exercising. They're going to see their doctor on a regular basis because high blood pressure is silent. Remember, February is American Heart Month, so we ask you to wear red on Wear Red Day, Friday, February 7. And I have to give a special thank you to my friend and colleague, Dr. Howard Weitz, once again. And in the, in the spirit of February, Howard, I can say, I heart you. And I want you to tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. because I'm your radio doctor and I hope I'll be making your life a little bit healthier. And remember that your health is your will. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.